Hey there, my friends. This is a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church, and we are in our series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom of God. May God bless you as you listen. Well, the month of April has a few significant events that the church honors and celebrates. Palm Sunday, as I said earlier, uh, Good Friday and Easter. And paralleling that Holy Week, that Passion Week this year, is the Passover. We'll be hosting that Passover meal on Good Friday, 10 o'clock in the church. It's in your bulletin. Have a look, and I hope to see you there. It'll be a great time. And then in April, we're also going to continue our series on the Kingdom of God. February, we focused on the evolving theme of the kingdom of God from the Old Testament, from Genesis to King David. We touched a little bit on it through the divided kingdom of King Solomon, David's son. And then in March, we looked at the inauguration of the kingdom of God as seen in the Gospels, uh, in the life and the ministry of Jesus our Christ. As well, we looked at his gift to the church and how it is that through the Holy Spirit, we continue his kingdom here on earth By that sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, Holy Spirit came to infuse the church with his life and with the salvation of God in order to empower the church to do what Jesus did, namely, to be bold witnesses of the good news of his ongoing kingdom in word and in power. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Why? Because I'm going to the Father. In other words, Holy Spirit will come and he will empower you to do the works that I did to see the kingdom of God continue to advance. In April, we're going to spend some time examining the eschatological kingdom of God. That's a 50-cent word. In other words, what it means is that we're going to be looking at what is yet to happen at the end of all things regarding the kingdom of God, otherwise known as the end times. Now, just a warning. At the mere mention of the end times, some of you are already salivating. I I can see that on some of your faces. So just wipe your chin, okay? It's that obvious. Wipe your chin. We're going to be looking at end times things, but understand that even though there are some really exciting things coming, I'm not going to be talking about any proposed timelines, I'm not going to be reading the end times events of Daniel and Revelation into our daily newspaper headlines. I'm not going to deal with the mark of the beast or who the Antichrist is. And by the way, it's not Russia, okay? And with the first two months of this series, we focus, as with the first two months of this series, we focused on the future, on the kingdom of God, and now we're going to be focusing on the future consummation of that kingdom. And so I'm not going to be looking at any sort of chronological order of events. I'm going to pick out some of the high points. And so here's the thing. We saw how this idea of the kingdom of God evolved from throughout the Old Testament to the New. And we saw how in Acts chapter 1, verse, chapter 1 and 2, how Jesus meant it to continue and continue to the end. So in a very real way, the kingdom of God is both now but not yet. It was now present when Jesus started preaching it, and it is now, now, it's still in effect today, but it's still not fully yet. One day, it will reach its completion when Christ returns for a second time. Think of it this way. 
those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And they are saved today completely without hesitation. But when Christ returns, our faith and our salvation will be, you grammar freaks are going to hate me for this, but it'll be completer. It'll be more full, more complete. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 to 6 says, Your inheritance is kept for you in heaven. In other words, there's something yet coming. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We know the Bible declares that we have already been raised with Christ. But when Christ returns, we will get a bodily resurrection as well. The Bible also declares that we've already been glorified as believers. But we will be glorified even more so when Christ comes a second time. The Bible declares that we are already become regenerate. In other words, we are already new creations in Christ. We're born again. And yet, we await a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies at the return of Jesus. So God has acted in Christ to fulfill his prophetic promises But the consummation of those promises, the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation will only happen when Christ comes a second time. And that's why we we call it the consummation of the kingdom of God. That means that we live in this present evil age, but as his disciples, we still partake and operate in the blessings, the power, and the authority of the coming age. That's what we, we mean by the kingdom of God is already now, but not yet. And that's why we should long and work hard for his return. Let's bring back our king. Amen? Now, I get that when we talk end time stuff, people want to know when it's going to happen. When this second coming of Christ should happen. Should I tell you? Do you want to know? Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm supposed to keep silent on those things. I'm not going to tell you any end times timeline, as I said. Maybe if you come and talk to me later in the week, I'll maybe tell you what I think. But I'll, I'll tell you what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14. He said, you will be handed over to be persecuted. This is what's yet to come. And be put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Well, that doesn't sound good. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. So folks, if we want to see the consummation of the kingdom of God, if we want to speed the return, the second coming of Jesus, then we need to get the gospel of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. That's the deal. So let's say we did. Let's say we got the kingdom, the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel to the ends of the earth. What's going to happen at the consummation of the kingdom? Well, the Bible tells us one thing for sure. It tells us that there is a wedding banquet coming. A wedding feast. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be looking at 1 through 9.
I put it in your sermon notes. There's also Bibles in your pews. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please feel free to take one of those Bibles. We'd love for you to have it for life. Um, This is our guidebook for life. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9. After this, John says, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the nations by her her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his saints, his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of a rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Seems like a lot of shouting in the future, doesn't it? So get your voices ready. To give us a sort of a 20,000 foot view of of Revelation, uh, Revelation 17 all the way to chapter 19 verse 10 is a description of the foretold judgment on Babylon. If you recall, when we were investigating the evolving theme of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament... A major challenge to God's kingship happened in Babel, if you remember the story, which is in Babylon. And according to Deuteronomy 32, since Babel, God has disinherited the nations, he has dispersed them to the four corners of the earth, and he gave them over to various gods. Yes, there are other gods. There are principalities and powers that control the nations. You can't help looking at, around the world today and not believe that there are supernatural forces of evil at work behind the scenes, manipulating, seducing people, governments, organizations, individuals. Their intent is to stop the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Why? Because they know their time is limited. That's not conspiracy theory. That's biblical eschatology. And Babylon has been a major player and an enemy of God Throughout the millennia, just maybe taking on different forms of governmental uh, uh, identity. But as great a threat as Babylon is to the kingdom of God, because of her wickedness, because of her arrogance, her self-indulgence, and her brutality towards the people of God through the ages, her destruction is announced in Isaiah 47. And now, finally, in Revelation chapter 4 to 19... That's where all the drama seems to take place. Don't bother trying to write down this chart. It's just the section headings in any of your Bibles. So if you want them, they're right there for you. But in chapters 17 to 19, God is drawing this conflict to a close. 
But God's objective is not merely the destruction of Babylon, also known as a great prostitute. God's objective is the, rest, is the redemption of all nations that he disinherited at Babel. Chapter 17 leads to the causes of the fall of Babylon. And in chapter 18, we see her fall as well as all who collaborate with her. Let me give you a word of caution here. Be careful trying to navigate through the chapters of Revelation. Understand that serious Bible scholars struggle to interpret what we read here in this book. And they don't all agree. And that's okay. Especially on the timeline, they don't all agree. One of the reasons is, is because Revelation is not a linear story. It's actually more cyclical in places than a chronological order of events. Also, very little in the book of Revelation should be taken literally. But unfortunately, some do. For instance, the, we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, where John says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lampstands, then, is symbolic representation for what the church is supposed to be in the world. Light. Otherwise, likewise, bowls and trumpets and beasts and banquets are not to be taken literally. They are symbolic in nature. And they do represent something. But we've got to be very careful in being too dogmatic on what they are. It's very important to remember that Revelation is a vision that John is having. And, and it, it's more than that. It's actually apocalyptic, which means that, that Revelation is more of a nightmare than kind of a walk through the meadows kind of a dream, you know? Also, Revelation borrows heavily from Second Temple period literature, which I'm sure most of you have not read because it's not in our Bibles. But John obviously did. And he borrows heavily from the Old Testament as well, not just Daniel. Also be aware that the political backdrop of John's day was the Roman emperor, Empire, who is like another Babylon. So you have to kind of parallel that to much of what you read in the book of Revelation. In that way, Babylon is symbolic for any and all world powers that would rise up and challenge Jesus' kingship. See, prophecy is a unique form of literature. Whether you're dealing with Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, the immediate context is the present-day struggle that the people of God are facing. It's always that way with prophecy. So it's not necessarily future-telling, although it often does have that element to it. Also be aware that much of what you already think you know about the end times and about the book of Revelation has been influenced by a particular end-time system that someone you like and respect was able to convince you of. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But some of you have absorbed all this information, even from fictitious things like novels, like the Left Behind series. And sometimes you got all that in the back of your noggin, and you're thinking it's all fact. It's fiction. You may not think that's possible, but here's a for instance. Many people believe that the devil rebelled against the the Almighty at some point before the fall of man, maybe even before creation itself, and that God kicked Satan out of heaven and he took a third of the angels with him. However, there's no place in the Bible that says that. But collectively, most of us have heard that and have thought that. The only place where one-third is connected with angels is from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. And that's a reference to the birth of Jesus. It's not referencing any pre-fall or pre-creation satanic rebellion. See, it's easy to absorb information along the way or only half hear something 
and then take it for granted, and then it becomes part of our thinking and maybe even part of our theology. So we have to be careful when reading Revelation and any apocalyptic or end times literature. That's why I encourage people to search YouTube and uh, for a three-part series by Dr. Michael Heiser. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he's got a series called Why Are You Where You Are in Your End Times Beliefs? Just Google his name and search for that title. Because believe it or not, we have been influenced more than we know on this topic. That's why I refuse to commit to a specific timeline or an end time system. I haven't made up my mind yet. There's good points in all of them. And that's why I refuse to teach on one, as much as some would probably like me to do, like other pastors do. But I will teach you something else. I will teach you to anticipate and long for the return of Jesus and why you are needed to bring back the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the consummation of his kingdom. You are needed to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we can then see the return of our Jesus. And that's why it's important for us to read all of Scripture for ourselves. And not just what we see other people in books telling us about the end. Because the kingdom of God is now. But don't worry. Because the Holy Spirit is now, because of the Holy Spirit coming to us, He will guide you and He will protect you from error as you study the end times, as you study this apocalyptic literature. And because the kingdom of God is now, like I said, there are a lot of brilliant Bible scholars out there who way smarter than me that don't all agree on the timeline. So give it a go for yourself and see what happens. Just be aware that what you're, when you're dealing with this literature, like Revelation and Daniel, Please, please, please be willing to be wrong. Please be willing to be wrong. After all, it's not the end of the world anyway, is it? Okay, I know, that was bad. Okay, let's get back to Revelation 19 after that lengthy warning. But I say that because sometimes in some churches, this topic causes a lot of disunity. And it causes a lot of problems. So that's why I refuse to teach on a particular timeline as well. I want unity above all things. Study, show yourself approved, enjoy your study, come to whatever conclusions you want, but God be praised. Amen? He's coming back. Okay, back to Revelation 19. Again, verses 1 to 5 describe the fate of Babylon. Uh, the ironic uh, justice of God is that Babylon, the prostitute, will be left naked and be destroyed by her own unfaithful lovers. Let's go back to chapter 17 before we get into 19 more. It says in verse 15, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. See, there's waters and peoples, multitudes, nations. This is symbolic. And that's reflecting back to Babel. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into her heart, their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So verse 17 here and verse 2 of chapter 19 tell us that this defeat was put into motion by Yahweh himself, by God himself as vengeance upon the prostitute, upon Babylon, for her murder of the saints of God in previous generations. Now let's look at chapter 19, verse 2 and 3. For true and just are God's judgments. 
He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of, her, of, his, of his saints. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The smoke of her death proclaims the deserved eternal judgment she'll be receiving. Verses 6 to 9 describes the eternal uniting. They're co- compare contrast. They're uni- they're talking, it's talking about the eternal uniting of the bride of Christ and her husband, the Lamb. Again, the ironic justice of God that Babylon, the prostitute, will be left naked and be destroyed by her own unfaithful lovers while the Lamb welcomes his faithful bride in triumph and victory and in celebration. Verse 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like peals, loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The bride of Christ is symbolic for the church. The Lamb is Jesus. The idea of a great wedding banquet is a repeated hope throughout the scriptures that's highlighted often as the coming of the king to earth. We see this in the Old Testament as well as in Second Temple period literature as John was very familiar with, which he borrows heavily from. In Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8, we get this image. On the mountain, the Lord Almighty... On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Similarly, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, you know, is famous for its pastoral imagery of God's care for his people, leading us through dark valleys and even finally through the valley of death. The second half of the psalm, though, is King David shifting his imagery to portray God as the host of a lavish banquet. In ancient Near Eastern times, the two images of shepherd and host of banquet were often applied to victorious kings returning home from the battlefield. And David reinforces that here, saying, You, Lord, anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So Psalm 23 uses banqueting to describe God as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords who pastors and provides for his people in his kingdom. And there are many other Old Testament banqueting analogies. But moving into the New Testament, we see Jesus himself using banquet imagery. Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. The parable makes two important points about the kingdom of God. We have to accept the king's invitation to the banquet and we have to be appropriately dressed for the occasion or we're not allowed in. Let's turn to that uh, parable, shall we? Matthew 22, verses 11 to 14. I 
love how all this comes together in, in, in such a united way. Matthew 22, 11 to 14. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Sound familiar? Revelation 19, 7 to 9. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And here's the cool thing about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Those who are invited and those who are properly clothed are considered righteous saints. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Using more feasting uh, analogies, uh, Jesus reinforces this idea of both Jew and Gentile at the banquet when he says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 12, it says, When Jesus heard the faith of the Roman Gentile centurion, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But all the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, in the, old, in, the, in the covenant promises of God to Abraham, remember we dealt with that in February, God promised to bless all the nations on earth through Abraham and Sarah's offspring. And we just, we just read that from Jesus, even Gentile centurions, a man who was, was an obvious enemy of Israel by race and nationality, becomes fully included in the covenant blessings of the people of God as seen in the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. Remember, that was the mystery that we learned about last month that God had kept hidden in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in Jesus our Messiah, that his salvation was for all nations. Hence the reason Jesus wants to get all nations in before the end comes, Matthew 24. And then, in, in Jesus' famous Last Supper, on which we base our communion meal, which we're going to observe today. Matthew 26, 26 to 29, it says this. When they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So clearly, Jesus anticipates a future kingdom banquet. And notably, he says, until that day, again, that's a reference to the, to the Jewish day of the Lord, at the end of days, that is his second coming. And after Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote most of the New Testament, though, he doesn't say really much about banquets, messianic banquets, in any of his letters. 
But he did give some instructions about practicing this meal. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's, the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. Second coming. So, in the same way that this communion meal today points us back to the sacrifice of Christ and how he delivered us, even now, then and now, from our sins. For Jesus and the disciples, their Passover meal that they were eating there, that pointed all the way back even further to the exodus of God's people, the miraculous delivery out of Egypt. And in both those meals, Passover and communion, Jesus is claiming to be the lamb that was slain for the salvation of his people. But likewise, both the ancient Passover and the Lord's Supper and now our communion meal point to a future deliverance, a future salvation, when the lamb will finally rescue his people from their ultimate enemies and then sit down with them in a climactic victory at the great wedding banquet at the end of the age. And he'll be present. Like I said earlier, there is both an already, now, and a not yet aspect, nature, to our salvation and the kingdom of God. Colossians 1, 12 to 14 says, We give thanks, we give joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Inheritance, future. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves now. And in whom we have redemption now and the forgiveness of sins now. Because of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, our salvation was secured once and for all. But understand, there is still a fuller salvation awaiting us still at the second coming of Christ when he brings all things together and makes them new. Like he said, Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day, the day of the Lord, his second coming, when I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Fellow saints of God, this wedding supper of the Lamb is not the only important part of Revelation, nor is it the only important part about the second coming of Jesus. But as we anticipate the consummation of all things at the end of the age, the wedding supper of the Lamb holds great assurance for you and me holds great assurance for you and I who believe that in the end, the Lamb of God wins, ultimately wins. Amen? He wins. And because he wins, everyone, from the, using the language of all the scriptures we've talked about, from the east to the west, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, everyone, great and small, Jew and Gentile, who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom 
of heaven. Friend, are you ready? Are you ready to take your place at the table? I hope you are. I know many of you already have. Well, this table in front of us anticipates that table. The table here is symbolic. It's symbolic of the victory we have now through the body and the blood of Christ, now already. And we rejoice in that. But also the victory that is yet to come. It's not yet, but it's coming when Jesus returns. And this meal points to that. And so when we eat from this table and we drink from this table, this table becomes a a united shout from us, the saints of God everywhere, from every nation, a hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah? Hallelujah? There you go. Jesus says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Are you invited? Like in the parable of the wedding, Jesus said, the invitations have been offered. And they'll keep getting offered. But some will refuse that offer. Some will refuse the invitation. And as a result, they won't have the, aprop- the proper grave clothes on, or the wedding clothes on. Have you taken it for yourself today? Will you accept it today? You online. How about you? The invitation has been sent. You just need to receive it. Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, we say hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And He is our Lord. Thank you that through this invitation that you've given, many will come. Our heart is burdened and heavy for those who will refuse to come. And we pray for them now. Lord, for those in the room and those online who say, I want to go. I want to be at the wedding. Friend, if that's you, you just need to say yes to Jesus. You need to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner. I confess my need of you for eternity, and for now. For what is now and also for what is not yet to come. And so, Lord, I offer myself to you. Give to me the salvation that you promise in your word and allow me to have access to the blessings of the salvation of God of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer, you are part of this banquet in the future. And I look forward to seeing all of us around it. Let's get our hearts and minds ready now for communion. This meal that I said is not only about the salvation that we have now, but also points to what is yet to come. Let the hallelujahs ring, because this is the song of the saints. And we're here today to worship the Lord around this table and to anticipate what is yet to come. Good things are yet to come. Amen? Amen. Tough things, but great things. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal. As it comes to us, it comes in the form of some symbols. It comes in the form of a piece of bread and a, and a little cup of juice, which is a symbol of your blood and your body. And Lord Jesus, we don't let these symbols just sort of pass by our consciousness without recognizing what they emblemize your death and our salvation. And so, Lord, today we grant you honor 
We grant you freedom in our hearts and our spirits to move and to have permission to be able to deal with what needs to be dealt with today so that we will endure to the end and be faithful servants with the time that we have left. Lord, thank you for this meal. It anticipates something greater in the future. It anticipates nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming and enjoying the feast of heaven, the blessings of the covenants of God. And so, Lord, help us to have all these things in our hearts as we eat and drink today. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the fact that we are a body, the body of Christ. And we're only part of it. We're one small part of it. And only in this generation in which we all live. There has been previous generations of the body. There will be future generations of the body. And all of them will be dabbling into the book of Revelation and trying to parse it out and trying to figure out what goes where and what goes how. The one thing that we all have in common is that we will all be at that great wedding banquet at the end of the ages, eh? Amen? The other thing that we have in common is that Jesus is coming back again, amen? And again, like I said, I encourage you to study, go to Bible studies, read the books, find out what you think, and it's fascinating. But the part of the body that's important is that we have a unity together, right? That We have a shared belonging and a shared participation in the salvation of our God. And that's why at this meal it's so important that we come together as such and why it's important that when we eat and we drink together, we're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Those two parts are most important. He died, he rose, he's coming back again. Amen? And so let's eat to that. Let's take our bread. This is part of the loud shout that will be in heaven. It'll be louder than this when we eat in heaven. Jesus, thank you for your body. Lord, thank you that you gave your life for us. Your body was tortured. Your body died. It literally died. But hallelujah, our king lives at the resurrection, which we'll be celebrating shortly in just a few weeks, Lord, at, the, at our Easter Sunday service. But thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. Father, thank you that you sent your son to give his life for us so that we may know you in this way. That is his invitation to us for this banquet at the end of the age. And so, Lord, together as the church, we have not only eaten that bread, made it part of ourselves, but now we drink this cup in honor of what Christ did to bring, us sin, bring our sins to account, to forgive them, and to prepare us for heaven. And now we have this, in, this shared inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of heaven when he returns. Hallelujah to the Lord God Almighty. He reigns. Let's drink together, shall we?